Hear the word of the Lord from John 4, 27 through 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. It's a joy to be with you this morning and to bring you the Word of God. If you are new, new here, Kevin said we are a family of missionary servants uh, learning how to submit more and more of our life to the Lordship of Christ. That might sound like a strange sentence to you, but it's really important in knowing who we are as a church. We believe that action, what we do, follows out or flows out of who we are. In other words, our identities inform our actions. Since we are saved by the sheer grace of God, we don't obey to become Christians. We don't serve in order to be accepted by God. It's actually the other way around, that God sent Jesus to this earth to serve us, and when we let him serve us, he changes our identities into servants, and then we serve others as a way of life. And God sent Jesus as a missionary. When we let him save us, he sends us out as missionaries to our city as well. God sent Jesus as the firstborn son of the father, or first, or first begotten son of the father, excuse me, to, to obey perfectly in our place so that we could be adopted into the family of God. Now we could have a family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are the church, right? So Jesus has done all this for us. And when we accept that, when we believe that, it changes who we are as people, changes our identities. And then our lives begin to, to flow out of those changes. So when we say we are a family of missionary servants, learning to submit more and more of our lives to the Lordship of Christ, that's what, what we mean is this is how Jesus is going to change our city. This is how Jesus brings his kingdom from heaven to earth. Remember, Jesus told us to pray in the, Lord's, in, the, in the Lord's prayer. On earth as it is in heaven, right? We want what's happening in, in heaven to come to this earth. Well, how does that happen? Well, people come to Christ. People get changed by Christ. And that's how Christ brings his kingdom. Today, we're going to look at God's plan for doing that. We're going to look at 
How does God usually change people? How does God usually save people? How does God multiply that work and change a whole city? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. God has a plan to redeem the whole world. That includes, of course, our city. He wants our city to look more like heaven. He wants peace and righteousness and justice to reign here. He wants joy and worship to fill our churches and echo out into the streets. And one day, it will. One day, by the grace of God, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover our cities like the waters cover the sea. Have you ever wondered, how is that going to happen? How will that happen? See, it's really easy to look at our world and to think, oh my goodness, things are so bad. How could God change it? How could God save it? Well, I got to remind us, there was a a time, a day and age, where our country was 100% pagan. 100%. Worshiping other gods, worshiping false gods, 100% pagan. And we are not 100% pagan right now. So even though things look bad, God brought us from 100% pagan to a Christian nation at one point in time. He can redeem it and restore us and do it again. Do you have faith to believe that? And here's the deal. If you study the Bible, you realize people come to faith. People get changed. Cities come to faith. Cities get changed. Nations get changed. And then things go bad. And they need it to happen again. But God does it. Historically, when you study the life of our nation, God has sent revivals. Or or in Europe, God has sent different revivals and different renewals. And he's brought many people to faith at the same time. God's done it once and God could do it again. We're going to study One specific example of how Jesus does this. How does Jesus bring his kingdom to this earth? Well, our text today actually shows us God's primary way of bringing his kingdom to earth or his primary way of saving people. And look, look at me right now. It's through you. What? God saves people and turns them into missionaries. If you are a Christian and you're in this room, you are a missionary. What? Yeah, yeah, you might be a terrible one, but you are one. It's about time you wake up to that fact, right? God is a spiritual tornado. He sucks us in and he sends us out. And we're going to see that this morning. So we're going to look at this. Let's let's open up our our Bibles to John chapter 4. And I'm going to pray for us and we get, get going. God, I thank you for your grace because I need it so much this morning. I am tired. I am worn out. My mind is not thinking as clear as I would like it to think. And so I ask that that you'd be strong in my weakness. I ask that you would speak through me. I ask that your people would hear your voice, that your word would be food to them. It would come alive to them and meet them where they are. It would quench their spiritual thirst. It It would satiate their spiritual hunger, that they would meet Jesus Christ and they'd be changed by him. I pray that you would feed us all this morning, Lord. Would you do this? Because you are a great Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Actually, you know what? I forgot. I'm going to pray for Isla as well. So, Father God, I thank you for Isla, and I thank you for the work, the miracle of grace that you're doing in her life as that she's resisting and fighting that cancer and that you are bringing healing to her body. I thank you for all the medical professionals that are helping her. I thank you for all the family. I pray that you continue to give their family faith and strengthen them in the midst of it, that we are believing for complete and total healing right along with them because you are the God that brings healing. We pray all this again in Jesus' powerful name. Amen and amen. All right. 
Well, last week, if you were with us, we studied Jesus' encounter, one of his most famous account encounters, with the Samaritan woman at the well. We saw Jesus cross all kinds of cultural and religious lines in order to give eternal life, what Jesus called living water, to a woman who was spiritually lost, sexually broken, and incredibly lonely. Again, spiritual water, this living water, this it, it, an eternal life, it's not just going to heaven when you die and living forever. It's a quality of life. It's a certain type of life. It's a walk with God that changes who you are from the inside, and then it changes how you live on the outside. We saw this woman that she had been married five times and she was shacking up with a guy who wasn't her husband at this time. He was using her. She had a spiritual thirst and she was using men to quench that spiritual thirst. And Jesus met her where she was and changed her life. We learned, again, that salvation was about more than going somewhere else, going to heaven when we die, but it was a living water meant to satisfy the spiritual thirst of our souls. Well, today is part two of that story. What happens after Jesus changes a woman's life? What happens after he did something, he met her and he changed her? Well, we know she had been looking for love literally in all the wrong places. That she had been trying to satisfy her soul by going to men. This pattern of life, it promised to satisfy. All you need is one more guy. All you need is one more man. All you need is one more lover. It promised to satisfy, but every time she would go to that well and she tried to drink and, and quench her thirst by, through the affections of men, she only wound up more thirsty. She wound up more lonely. So lonely that she was rejected by the rest of Samaritan society. And Samaritan were like the worst of the worst and the bottom rung of the society. They, they, were, they were cult worshipers, basically. So not only, so now like even the cult worshiper and community does, don't accept her. She's going to the well at noon, the hottest part of the day, when nobody else is there because she has to. She's not accepted at all. But what happened? Her life had left her more thirsty than ever. And yet Jesus meets her where she's at and he gives her what she's really looking for, eternal life, living water. She meets the man who will change her life. She meets the only man that can satisfy her needs. And that's the God man, Jesus Christ. Well, that's where we left off last week. And we're picking up in verse 27 this week. Just then his disciples, Jesus's disciples came back. All right. Remember, this is funny. Jesus has walked for hours, probably about six hours. He had walked. It was the hottest part of the day. He goes to the well. They're hungry. They're thirsty. The apostles go into town to buy some food, okay? They go into town to buy some food. While they're in town, Jesus is talking with this Samaritan woman that he shouldn't be talking to, that all the society says he shouldn't be talking to. Well, they come back and look at him. They marveled. They're amazed, they're blown away, they're confused that he was talking with a woman. Now, we, we need to combine two things. Jews don't talk with Samaritans. And in, in this day and age, the, the Jews, specifically the Pharisees, had created all kind of rules on top of the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say men can't talk to, to, to women in public or anything like that. But the Jews had placed laws on top of the law 
And they had, uh, they, one of their laws was a, a man cannot talk to a woman in public, and especially a Samaritan woman. So that was a cultural line. You just don't do it. Everybody knows a man doesn't go and talk, a Jewish man doesn't go and talk to a woman in public. And so the disciples, they grew up in this environment. They show up back to the well with their snacks, right? They, they've, they've, they've been to the, the burger joint and come and they've got their, they got their, they didn't have a burger joint, but they should have, okay? They didn't yet, but it's coming, right? It's coming. They show up with their food and they're like, whoa, what is Jesus doing? He's, he's, he's breaking, he's crossing lines here. He's, he's breaking rules here. Why is he talking to this woman? Now let's keep reading. They marveled. But no one said, well, what do you seek? Or, or why are you talking with her? I love it because Jesus, he's so authoritative that there's this challenge. That there peop- his own followers are like, I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. I'm not going to ask him. Last time we asked him, he made us look dumb. I'm not going to say anything. Let's just see how this plays out. Right? What are you talking with her? Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, so that's a key detail. The woman left her water jar. Now what's going on there? What does that tell us? Remember, she was at the well because she was thirsty. She was at the well to satisfy her physical needs. But the When she meets Jesus, she drops her water jar and runs into town. What that is meant to tell us is she found what she was really looking for. In other words, Jesus quenched her soul thirst. He changed her life. He gave her something far more meaningful and important to her than the water that her jar could hold. So she drops the jar and she takes off into town. And here's what I want you to see. Step one in Jesus changing our city is for you to meet the real Jesus. That's step one. Don't expect a a Christian nation. Don't expect a Christian city. Don't expect a bunch of churches across town until you meet the real Jesus. The Jesus that satisfies what you're looking for, that gives you what your soul is craving, so you drop what you're currently doing and you follow him. Have you had a life-changing encounter with Jesus like this? Has he become more important to you than money, than the things of this world, than your status, your career, your success, your comfort? Has Jesus become more important to you than any of those things? Can you say with the psalmist, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's saying my soul craves God like a thirsty person in the desert craves water. So what does he do? He says, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. The psalmist met a real God, a God that satisfies their creature, his creatures. He knows his love is better than life. The reality of the matter is, today we're going to learn about evangelism. Everybody gets real nervous when we talk about evangelism because most people don't do it (laughs) and everybody knows they're supposed to do it. 
The reality is you're never going to understand you're a missionary. You're gonna, never going to live like a missionary. You're never going to be a good evangelist. You're never going to see God do amazing things like we're going to see in the rest of this chapter until Jesus becomes the most important thing in your life or person in your life. The reality is all of us are evangelists. And what we're going to see is evangelism is actually the most natural, simplest process God made us like this. We're going to look right away. Look, look, at verse, look at verse 29. This is what this woman says. So she drops what she's doing. She drops her jar. She goes back into town where everybody hates her. Nobody wants anything to do with her. And here's what she says to the town. Verse 29. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. First off, that's a very sad statement. Because what Jesus said to her was, hey, go get your husband. And she's like, I got no husband. He's like, you're right, you've had five and the guy you're shacking up with now is not your husband. She's like, <gasps> and when she goes back into town, she says, come see a man who told me I ever did, all I ever did. What's that mean? She was defined by her sexual brokenness and her spiritual confusion and her lostness and her loneliness. To her in her mind, that's all I ever did. All I am is a sexually confused, broken woman. That's all I am. This man knows all about me. That's the message that she took into town. This is her sermon to the lost. Come see a man who read my soul, who knows my story, who changed my life. Come and see. That's all he said. Come and see. We get, sometimes Christians get so, make this so complicated. You don't have to learn presuppositional apologetics and every answer in the age of the universe and all of this scientific evidence for the, for the existence of God. Sometimes you say, come and see what God has done. Come to my missional community. Come to my church. Come to hear this guy who can't speak normally and yells all the time. <laughs> That's her only message. The fact of the matter is, we're all evangelists. We share news about what excites us. I got caught this week on Facebook. An ad popped up. Somehow they knew me. I'm a, here's a little bit of TMI for you. I'm a side sleeper. As a side sleeper, never satisfied with my pillows. They always, my neck, I wake up sore, with a sore neck all the time. Somehow the marketing gods put it right into my Facebook feed, a square pillow for side sleepers. <laughs> the pillow cube. I'm an evangelist for the pillow cube. I bought that sucker Six days, amazing sleep. <laughs> Changed my life. Here's the deal. You share what you're excited about. You tell when you experience something good, whether it's, you know, whatever your hobby is, a new golf club, a new pair of jeans, a new restaurant. When you find something enjoyable and good and satisfying, you share it. If you're not, you're a horribly boring person and nobody wants to be friends with you. Gonna be honest, right? Right? You, who, 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 who goes to an amazing restaurant and then never tells anybody? You, no. When you find something enjoyable, you share it. Here's the deal. This woman met the man she had been looking for and that man wasn't just a physical man, it was the God man. So of course she went and told it. So when, we, when people ask me sometimes, how do I share my faith? It's invite people to church. It's the simplest thing to do. Share your story. Tell people. What do you mean? Now, Here's what I really wonder. 
If you're not doing that, have you really met the real Jesus? See, Jesus, he won't be an accessory to your life. You can't add him to your life. If you meet the real Jesus, he takes over your life. It's your life for his life. It's a trade. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. It's all or nothing. So I wonder, have you met Jesus like this? Verse 30. So first off, 29. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The Christ is a term. It means the anointed one. It's the savior of the world. Can this be the one that's gonna make everything that's wrong with the world right? Can he bring healing to the world? She just asked this question. Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. So these women, these people in the city, Samaritans again, are coming to follow this woman's testimony. They started to come see Jesus. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him to eat, saying, Rabbi, eat. Okay, here's the disciples. The disciples, uh, they missed the point again, all right? They missed the point. They, they, they went and got snacks, okay? And they came and they brought him to Jesus. They Jesus, we did the errand and here, Jesus, you need to eat. Okay, and now Jesus, he used living water. He used the water as a metaphor last week. Now he's going to use food as a metaphor, and he's going to use another metaphor. Jesus likes to use metaphors. Verse 32, but Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, this is one of those metaphors, this wordplay of Jesus. And if you're not good with wordplay and metaphors, it's just going to go right over your head, right just like the apostles. It goes right over their head. And what do they say? So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I, I, whew, right? Like, did Jesus have snacks? Like, what, what's going on? Like, verse 34, Jesus did not have little Debbies in his robe, okay? <laughs> Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Okay, Jesus here uses another metaphor. One is, that is very similar to the living water he used with the Samaritan woman. But this time he says, I've got food that you don't know about. No doubt this is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 where God had been feeding his people in the desert for 40 years and he fed them with manna. Now we say manna, that's a transliteration. We all think we know what it is. But the word manna in the Hebrew literally means, what is it? God fed them with, what is it? With what you call it. That's what God fed him. Like, what is it? I don't know, but eat it. It's spiritual food. And when he did that, this is what God, when, after they had fed him for 40 years, this is what God said. God said in Deuteronomy 8.3, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. See, all throughout scripture, God's words are referred to as spiritual food. Just as you eat food and it nourishes your physical body, you are to consume the word of God and it nourishes you spiritually by grace and by miraculous grace. The prophet Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Jeremiah takes the word, he finds them sweet, he eats them and they bring nourishment and change to his body. 
Jesus and he's in the desert and he's tempted by Satan. Satan comes to him and tries to make, he's hungry. He tries to make him turn stones into bread. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, walking with Christ, meeting Jesus is meant to be an experience. Just like eating a meal is an experience. We're meant to taste and see that he's good. We're meant to consume the word of God and it brings nourishment and sustenance to our body and it changes us into more spiritual mature people. We start with the milk, we move on to bread and we move on to meat, the Bible even says. But what's interesting here, Jesus doesn't just say, oh yeah, I love God's word and I eat God's word and I love reading it and knowing it and meditating on it. No, Jesus knows that the purpose of the word isn't just knowledge. It's not just to know some biblical trivia. It's not just to be able to go on some game show and answer who are all the judges and you're the guy that's got all the answers. No, the purpose of the word of God and us meditating on the word of God is for us to play our part in the story of God. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, it's not about knowledge, it's about action. He says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, obeying God the Father. So knowing God's will and obeying God and doing what he commands me to do is more important to me than my next meal. Remember the context of the story. Jesus shows up to this well. He's tired. He's thirsty. He's hungry. The disciples go to town to get food. But then look, the mission of God interrupts Jesus' plans. Jesus meets a lost woman. Jesus, this is supernatural because Jesus is a man, 100% man. So Jesus gets hungry, right? Now, I don't know if Jesus was like me, but I don't just get hungry. I get hangry, okay? And when my stomach starts growling, I don't think about much else than food that needs to be put in my belly, okay? That's about all I get to, that's all I want to think about. But in this moment, Jesus sees a spiritually broken, lost person who's sexually confused and he knows that God's will is more important right now. The mission of God has interrupted my plans and I don't, I don't have time to eat. I need to speak to this woman. And what's going on? The disciples show up and the disciples are like, Jesus, we got the food. Aren't you hungry? Jesus, can you... What spiritually dense people? There's a woman here who needs saved. There's a woman here who needs spiritual life to be born again. And, and they're like, Jesus, you should eat. Take a break. She can wait. Not only her, but all the friends that she's just brought in. Ah, they can wait. You need to eat, Jesus. No, and what, here's what we're seeing. Jesus isn't just meeting a woman and changing her life. He's also discipling the disciples. He's reorienting the disciples' priorities. 
He's teaching them in the context of real life and ministry. And what is he teaching them? Number one, he's teaching them all people matter to God. All people. What do they get? They show up. He's talking to a woman and she's a Samaritan. Jesus doesn't care. He crosses all those cultural lines. He meets with this Samaritan woman, this immoral woman, this lost and lonely woman, and and he's teaching the disciples, she matters to me. She matters to the Father. The Father is seeking those, he's seeking worshipers, and she's one of them. So whatever you have in your mind that God chooses the goody two-shoes, God chooses the really moral upright ones, God chooses the really nice and sweet ones, no, 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 God goes after women like her. Secondly, Jesus is teaching them, disciples, let your reputation be damned. Jesus crosses all those lines. He's not supposed to talk to women. Not supposed to talk to Samaritans. He crosses all the lines. He doesn't care. And you know what? It's eventually going to get him killed because people are going to say, he's breaking commandments. He's doing this. He's doing that. Jesus didn't care about his reputation. Who cares what people say? Cross the cultural line. Look bad in the world's eyes if you have to, but do the will of God in seeking and saving the lost. Number three, we see that right away, the real Jesus changes your life. I love the disciples because they show up and they're all following Jesus. What did Jesus say? Come and and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, I'll make you evangelists. I'll make you into missionaries. And guess what? This woman learns how to be a missionary day one. Day one, boom, she gets her life changed. Jesus changes her life. She runs into town, starts a revival. The disciples are like, oh. And who is this woman, right? Number four, you see, sometimes mission, the mission of God and ministry are more important than your next meal, more important than eating and drinking. And we must seize the moment when the opportunity strikes. We also see that real ministry often happens outside the doors of the church in the context of everyday life. This woman gets saved at a well. That's a watering hole. It could be a pub. It could be a bar. It could be a coffee shop. It could be a restaurant. It could be your house. This woman gets changed by Jesus out in the streets. And then lastly, we see the disciples needed, in one sense, they needed to have a spiritual eye transplant they needed to begin looking at the world through the eyes of a missionary. Look at verse 35. Do you not say, this is Jesus switching metaphors again, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now, remember, this woman went back into the Samaritan city of Sychar. It was full of cult worshipers who were just as spiritually confused as she was. There's at least a couple ways to look at this. One, you can say, look how bad things are. Look at our culture. Just, there's just cult worshipers everywhere. There's just pagans everywhere. The whole city is a bunch of cult worshipers. What are we going to do? That's one way to look at it. Look how bad things are. But that's not how Jesus sees things. Jesus has the eyes of a missionary. He sees a whole lot of people who are spiritually lost and need to meet him. So Jesus switches the metaphor again and he says, the fields are white for harvest. 
In other words, in some good old Iowa terms, the cornfields are brown for harvest. It means it's harvest time. And if you don't know, a farmer's life changes drastically during harvest time. When you plant seed in the ground and you're waiting for God to do what God does, which is send the rain and send the sun, you can enjoy a nice cup of coffee nearly every morning on your porch. No rush. You can't speed up the corn from growing, right? But when that corn turns brown and it becomes harvest time, now it becomes all hands on deck. This is why you'll be, going, you'll be driving on the interstate and you see farmers out there with their headlights on, right? Do, bringing in the harvest at 10 o'clock at night. Why? Because the harvest doesn't wait around. You don't get to go, I'll get to it next week, I'll get to it tomorrow. No, you gotta get it in as fast as you can so you don't lose it. Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to seize the moment. These knuckleheads are walking around, hey, uh, Jesus, I got lunch. Look right past the spiritually lost woman right in front of her. She's got all of her friends here, they're like, hey, Jesus, you should eat. Taco Bell's getting cold. Come on, Jesus. Right? And they're like, he's like, oh my goodness. Look! People are here. They're lost. We have the answer. We have the gospel. We have the good news. Wake up. Have eyes like a missionary. You're not here just for your enjoyment. You're not here just for your hobbies. You're not just he here to get what you want out of life. You are a missionary. And people don't have what you have. Eternal life. Man, Jesus looks around at all these lost people and says, go get them. Bring them in. The Father's been seeking worshipers. Go and get them and tell them who I am and what I've done for them. And then Jesus says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. In other words, people have gone before you. There's been the patriarchs. There's been the prophets. John the Baptist, they've been preaching the gospel and many of them got killed for it. And now you get to show up at the end of the story and you get to preach the gospel and people are actually gonna come to faith. You get to reap where you did not sow. I can't help but believe that our church, God is calling our church into a similar season. I believe there are many people in our cities, many people in Bettendorf who have been praying for a new church to come to their city that would be faithful to the gospel, that would preach the word of God, that would stand strong on the word of God and ask God to do the miraculous. There are many of us who've been laboring for over a decade in the Quad Cities, sowing seeds of the gospel and praying for a harvest. And now God's given us this building and everybody says that more people are gonna come and they probably are gonna come because I guess you officially become a church when you buy a building, I guess. You know, several hundred people every single week gathering together. It's not really a church, but once you actually have a church building, now you're an official church and people can come and worship God with your official church, I guess. Whatever. Listen, but what, you know what we get to do? And there's many of you that are joining us now, right? You are going to enter into our labor and you're going to reap blessings and reap harvest where you didn't sow. And that's gonna be a huge blessing. Many people are gonna come to our church. Many people are gonna come to faith. Some of your children, some of your brothers and sisters and family members and friends and neighbors. And we get, I think God's calling us into a similar season like that as we move into this next season of ministry. And look what happens here in our city. I pray the same would be for us. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. 
he told me all that I ever did. Now, this is interesting here. This was her gospel message. We get so tied up in knots about what am I going to sh- share to that person? To- this guy changed my life. This guy told me all that I ever did. To me, it reminds me of, of Jonah in the book of Jonah when he doesn't want to go to Nineveh and he finally goes to Nineveh and he's like, God's going to kill you all. And, they, and he, he, he doesn't like him. He says, God's going to kill you all. And they fall down on their faces and they repent in, in dust and ashes. And then God gives them grace and saves the whole city. He's like, I knew God was going to be gracious to them. He walks, worst preacher in history. And God starts a revival with him. Well, this woman's the second worst one. Come see a guy that told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And what does God do? Starts a revival with it. Man, I pray the same would be for us. Look at this. How do I share my faith? This woman has been a Christ follower for like an hour. She's already a missionary. She didn't go to, she didn't go to Bible college in that hour. Okay? She didn't become a theologian. She didn't become a moral philosopher. She didn't even become a moral person yet. She's got a man at home waiting on her. He don't even know he's about to get the boot. <laughs> Before she goes back home and says, hey, you kick rocks, buddy. Pack your bags. She goes and tells everybody about this Jesus who changed her life. She wasn't a brilliant public speaker. She went and told the people who had rejected her, the people that she wasn't even accepted by, that Jesus is better than life itself. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Look at this. Jesus crossing cultural lines. Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. Jesus is like, I'll stay two days. I'll I'll, I'll have a layover here. God's pursuing the lost. And many, verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. One woman meets the real Jesus She gets her life changed and she goes, tells anyone who will listen, they come and see the real Jesus and Jesus changes their life too. Why? Because Jesus is our creator. He created us with a Jesus-sized hole in our soul that nothing but him can satisfy. So when you meet him, he literally completes you. And they get changed and what what do they say? They say, He is the savior of the world. He's the one that's gonna make us all right. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's more than just a miracle worker. He's the savior of the world. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the savior of the world? Well, to begin to answer that question, you first need to know who God is. Primarily, that God is holy. And now that is a four-letter word that seems simple, but it's very complex and hard to understand. Holy literally means other. It means that God is not like us. He's in a category of being all by himself. He is the only essential being in all the universe. One day, if I die, the world keeps going on. When you die, the world keeps going on. If God could die, nothing else would exist. We are contingent upon him to have our being. God is the only necessary 
being. God is in a category all by himself. There's God and there's all of creation. God isn't like us. Listen to this. Part of being holy means God is the same all the way through. He's eternally consistent all the way through. What does that mean? Well, for us, we can be good one minute and evil the next. In one sentence, we can say something true and then we can say something that's a lie. God cannot do those things. God is truth all the way down. God is goodness all the way down. God is beauty all the way down. He is the essence of all of those things. God cannot tell a lie. He is truth all the time. He is beautiful all the time. He is good all the time. He cannot be evil. He cannot be bad. He cannot do anything wrong. He cannot be unrighteous or unjust. Now, why do I say that? Because this is, hopefully you can see the problem. When God says, the soul that sins, it should die. That is a universally true royal edict, a royal law. And I hope you see the issue. We are all sinners. Therefore, we all deserve to die. We deserve death, hell, and the judgment. Because we have sinned against a holy and perfect God. But in God's holiness, listen to this, he's also, part of his holiness is also, he's eternally loving and eternally gracious. And he wants to forgive us of our sins. Now, but because of who God is, forgiving sinners is not a simple thing to do. Why? Think about it. Imagine that you were a judge and your son or daughter came before your bench after getting caught drunk driving when they killed another person. Now listen, your love goes out to your son. Maybe it was the first time drinking. Maybe it was a huge mistake. Maybe you know he's sorry. You know he's never going to do it again. You don't want this to ruin his life. But you are a judge. If you were to just forgive your son, no matter how much you love him, if you were to forgive him, you would become an immoral judge. You would become an unrighteous judge because there's people on the other side of the courtroom that got a family full of people that have lost a loved one that they're wanting judgment. They're wanting righteousness. They're wanting justice to be done. See, God... This is infinitely more true about God, our judge. He cannot just look away from our sins. He cannot simply ignore our lies and ignore our selfishness and greed and immorality. That would effectively be putting his stamp of approval on our sins. He would become unjust and unrighteous. As the just judge of all the world, if he did that, God would become immoral and evil. So, Here's the big question. How does God forgive us without becoming unrighteous in himself? How can God save us from our sins? Well, we know this. We've already looked at it. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not, look, send his son as a missionary into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God comes to the earth in the person of Jesus. The Son was eternally with God in the Trinity. The Son was always the Son. He was a spirit. He became, he moved into his mother's womb and became a man in Jesus Christ. So he, we say he's the God man, 100% man, 100% God. As a man, listen to this, Jesus never sins. He lives a morally upright and perfect life Therefore, he's the only human being who doesn't deserve death and judgment. He's the only human being that when God looks at him, God says, perfect, righteous, this guy makes me happy because Jesus never sins. He always does the will of God. But as God, Jesus also had the power of an indestructible life. He was God, so he could stand in the presence of God. He could go before the throne of God. He could go before the judgment seat of God. So what does Jesus do? Jesus radically, when we go before the throne of God and we're guilty and all the judgment and all the condemnation is about to come down upon us, Jesus says, no, 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 get out of the way. Let me take your place. The only man who deserves heaven, who deserves exaltation for his perfect life, instead, he says, no, condemn me instead. The wrath of God on me. In our place, as our representative, Jesus says, even though I am, sin, I am sinless, count me as a sinner. He says to the Father, Father, put, your, put their sin on me and punish me so that you can both preserve your holiness and justice and give them grace and forgiveness at the same time. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our sake... He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest thing in the history of the universe. When Jesus goes before the throne of God and the judgment seat of God, he says, God the Father, turn me into sin and punish me and take my perfect record, my perfect righteousness, and gift it to your children by faith. This is sheer grace. It's a gift of God. What that means is, imagine this. Jesus was the perfect son. <laughs> the perfect, none of us have ever experienced a perfect son. Right? A perfect son. You walk into the house. Hey, son, could you? Oh, it's already, it's already done. Hey, son, could you pick? Oh, he already picked it up. You know what it would be like to have a perfect son? You'd be happy all the time. He does everything, he does everything you want him to do before you have to ask him to do it. Right? God is eternally happy with Jesus. But here's the problem. We know we're sinners. And if God hates sin, right, but God loves us, well, then God must be constantly confused. He must be mad at us one moment and happy with us another moment. If we're reading our Bible, he's really happy, right? If we're sharing our faith, he's really happy. If we're going to church, he's really happy. But when we're sinning and we're doing dumb stuff, he's really mad at us. This is the, one of the greatest truths of the gospel. When Jesus, when we give Jesus our sin, Jesus gives us his righteousness. So when the father looks at us, he looks at us through Jesus. So he's eternally pleased with Jesus. 
He's eternally pleased with us. Never pleased with our sin, but he still loves us. He's still pleased with us because of the righteousness of Christ. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. We give Jesus our sin and Jesus gives us his righteousness. That's the gospel. That's good news. Now listen, this is how the world is saved through Jesus. It's not everyone in the world who gets saved. Only those who believe that Jesus died on the cross for them and rose from the dead in order to turn them into the righteousness of God. Now, can I ask you, how does this make you feel? How do you feel about that? Jesus died for you. He gives you his righteousness, pays for all your sin. Listen, my experience as a pastor says people's reaction to Jesus' death and Jesus' sacrifice it usually rises and falls on how highly they think of themselves. What do I mean by that? Some people just don't see themselves in need of saving. And they think, Jesus died on the cross? Well, I didn't really need that. See, most people that I meet think of themselves as actually pretty good. They don't need saving. They just need a little help. I don't think that I'm under the judgment of God. I don't think I'm under the wrath of God for the sins that I've committed of worshiping something more than I worship Jesus. No, I just have this anxiety issue and I just need some help. I just have a physical issue and I just need a little bit of healing. I don't need salvation. I don't need saved. This is why Jesus said that prostitutes and tax collectors come into the kingdom of God before those who think they're righteous. And perhaps that's why Jesus here starts this revival with a spiritually lost, incredibly lonely, and sexually broken woman. She knew her need. The disciples thought they needed lunch. She knew she needed eternal life. She knew she was a sinner. She had a debt of sin stacked up so high, she knew there was, she would take five lifetimes, she could never repay it. And here comes Jesus freely offering her forgiveness and eternal life. And so when she gets that forgiveness, she drops her jar and takes off and tells the world about it. Imagine with me as I close. As you get older in life, this is one, this is, this, maybe this is, a, this is, can be a recurring nightmare for some folks as you get older. Imagine with me a moment where you get a call on this Monday morning. You get a call from an unknown number and for whatever crazy reason, you decide to answer it. And it's the IRS. Oh, Lord have mercy. And they say, hey, we found some irregularities with your taxes over the past decade. And now you've got back taxes to pay immediately or we're coming after your house or could put you in jail. Man, how does that feel? Phone call like that on a Monday morning, that's pretty awful, right? Now imagine that they won't tell you how much you owe on the phone. You've got to come down to the courthouse to find out. Even more nervous. Then when you get there, they usher you into a room and there's a lot of official people in the room and they call your name. Man, you're nervous. Probably couldn't eat breakfast that morning. Stomach's queasy. Palms are sweaty. 
Oh, what's going to happen here? And they read off your name, Justin Dean. Your debt's been paid by another. Now, what's your reaction to that? Here's my reaction. Well, how big was my debt? And who paid it? First off, because if I find out my debt was $5, I am mad that I even woke up and came down here this morning. You wasted my time, IRS. Surprise, surprise. But if I wake up and I hear that number and I hear it was $5 million, first off, stomach sinks. Oh, I could never repay that. And then I hear the name of the man who paid it. I think, who is this man? Why would he do this for me? And I'm going to go out hollering and shouting like I don't enough, right? In the streets, singing this guy's praises. I'm going to say, my chains fell off. My debts are paid. I am free and I am forgiven. And I'm going to say, praise Jesus Christ. Who is this man? I'm going to tell anybody that wants to listen who this man is. The same is true for us. Listen. There are no little sins because there's no little God to sin against. Our debt we owe to God is in the billions and yet Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. If you think of yourself as a little sinner, you will think of Jesus as a little savior. And you won't tell anybody about a little savior. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you meet our deepest needs. Would you make your people aware of them now? Make us aware of our spiritual thirst, of our spiritual hunger. Show us how we normally try to quench it through the world's goods, through people, through the, just the creation itself. And would you draw us back to yourself? You're the only one that can satisfy us. You even give Christians a meal, the Lord's Supper, where you promise to feed us from your flesh and give us your blood to drink so that you can spiritually minister and nourish our souls. That we, as we're doing this, this isn't just a mere symbol. You're, you're feeding us this morning spiritually. So Father, those who came in hungry, would you feed them? Those who came in thirsty, would you give them something to drink? Would you meet us here in this moment, God of all grace? And would we leave here today and we go tell this world that's in need of a great savior that Jesus Christ is that great savior? Would you do this for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.